In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we got some not-so-fun subjects to talk about, (laughs) which has been a very important theme throughout this entire time. We're going to be talking about COVID-19, because of course we're going to be talking about that. Um, But then we're also going to take a minute to talk about some of the stories that have kind of slipped through the cracks as we focused on some of the uh, major aspects of COVID-19 and some of the failures of the Trump administration during COVID-19. And then we're going to end today by dispelling some common misconceptions about uh, sexual assault survivors. Yeah, so let's get started with uh, the low point of the day. Let's talk about coronavirus updates. Um, So just a quick update on the numbers to get started. Um, So currently worldwide, 3.6 million cases. That's about 500,000 more than last week. And about 251,000 deaths, about 36,000 more than last week. while those numbers are actually really high, um, this is actually a good trend a little bit that we're seeing. So when we reported last week, the week-over-week increase over the week before was actually 600,000 cases. So now it's a 500,000 case increase. So 100,000 case, um, you know, slower spread of the disease. And the week-over-week death increase was um, 45,000 last week, and now... To this week, it's only 36,000. So it's actually slowed down um, in terms of spread and death overall in the world. Um, in the U.S. right now, we've got 1.2 million cases. That's about 209,000 uh, more than last week, which is pretty much an even week-over-week increase. So the last two weeks have had about 200,000, 200, 210,000 um, cases increase each week. Um, And with about 70,000 deaths so far, so that's about 10,000 more than last week, which is a little bit of a a flattening of the curve. Um, So 70,000 deaths is still a major killer in the United States and really the world. Like coronavirus is killing more people than pretty much anything else at this point. Um, Yeah, just this last week, the amount of people that have died in the United States due to COVID-19 surpassed the number of United States soldiers that died in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's in a couple months. So if you don't think the virus is public enemy number one, then (laughs) I guess you also didn't really care about the Viet Cong. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so we're still making up about a third of the world's cases and about 28% of the world's deaths. Um, and again, our population is only four and a quarter percent of the world's population. Um, or, or as Jared Kushner put it, we are a great success story. <laughs> like we're um, winning the race or <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Well, no, he's talking of, he was specifically talking about how there were still estimates that up to, you know, one to two million people could die because of this. And based on those projections, the number of 60,000 looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Now, that's true. Any objectivist could look at that and say that there's definitely a point to be had there. But we also need to recognize that we're not out of this yet. 
that's not the number is not going to stay there. Now it is starting to flatten and hopefully it's going to slow down and hopefully it won't even approach that, but we're not out of it yet. And another thing that we need to consider is like what, what Michael said, we need to compare our performance with the performance of other countries, because it's possible that COVID-19 is coming in a little bit under how we might've originally estimated it to go, or based on the response of other countries and the response of our country, we've been able to keep it below previous estimates. And while that is a good thing, Mm -hmm. it is still very telling that the United States has done a significantly worse job at curving the spread of COVID-19 than any other country. As Michael pointed out, we currently hold approximately a third, a third of all COVID-19 cases, but we represent 5% of the world population. Mm -hmm. So if you want to call that a success story, what do you think is a failure? (laughs) And to your point, we're not out of the woods yet. Like I would love to be able to say that from here on out, the curve is like the trajectory is downward and cases are going to keep decreasing and deaths are going to keep decreasing. The problem is that again, like we need sophisticated methods to get out in front of this thing rather than just continue the same, um, you know, halting of our economy and in order to slow the spread of the disease, like, you know, we've we've taken some, we've improved our ability to test, we've improved our ability to do contact tracing, but it's just not nearly at the scale that we're going to need in order to sufficiently open ourselves up again without a corresponding increase in cases and deaths. Um, so to me, like, the success is when we can walk and chew gum at the same time in curbing the spread of the disease while still being able to function at a normal level in society. That is when we have success. It is, you know, preventing deaths is, of course, the number one priority. And that is, you know, what we have to strive for. Our goal should be preventing deaths and avoiding, you know, economic catastrophe. So until we can do both, like I say, success is far off. Yeah. And again, I know that we keep using this example, but it's an important example to look at. Remember how the first case in the United States happened on the first day, on the same day that the first case in South Korea happened? Mm-hmm. As of today, they have 10,801 cases and only 252 deaths. That is a that is insane. Yeah, compared to 1.2 million cases and 70,000 deaths. Yeah. Now, they have a smaller population, mm-hmm. but not by that much. I mean, yeah, it's it's a significantly smaller country. Having a smaller population doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a slower spread of the disease. You know, like, it's also a much smaller country geographically, so people are still close together, people are still interacting a lot. You know, there's nothing about a smaller population that would mean that their case rate would be lower. It's their response that's leading their case rate to be significantly lower. And you'd think having a larger population, we would have a correspondingly larger ability to deal with problems, you know? And the problem is the first few months of COVID-19 were critical. And during those first few months, Trump was pretending it was a Democratic hoax. Yeah. (laughs) And now he's pretending he didn't say that. (laughs) Yeah. And pretending that that it's a Chinese-initiated virus, like in a lab in China. (laughs) 
We'll talk more about that later. Yeah. Anyway, we're not nearly where we should be, but at least the curve is flattening at least a little bit. It is flattening. However, our path to get to where we need to be is not entirely clear, or at least it's not entirely clear that we can get there within a reasonable amount of time. So a recent Harvard study estimated that in order for us to be able to reopen the United States by mid-May, the United States would have to perform 500,000 to 700,000 tests every day. And that came out on April 17th. However, recently, another Harvard estimate came out uh, on April 28th, which projected that it would be better for us to increase that to 5 million to 20 million. And right now, we have 146,000 tests per day. So Mm. even the bare minimum testing that they had projected, the 500,000 per day, we're not even close to that. Yeah. Yeah, and to be in a really good spot, we'd be needing to do closer to that 5 to 20 million number. And in fact, the largest number that we tested in a single day was 314,182. So still well below even the barest of bare minimums. So a few hours after the study came out, Trump was asked by a reporter if there was any way we could reach that recommendation of 5 million daily tests. And he said, we'll increase it, and it'll increase it by much more than that in the very near future. And he was asked to clarify that it would surpass 5 million tests per day. And he said, we're going to be there very soon. So if that's true, that would be wonderful. That would be Mm -hmm. absolutely wonderful. An very impressive turnaround from the months of insufficient testing that we've been doing. Exactly. But right after that, the Assistant Secretary of Health, who currently is in charge of the government's testing response, said in an interview, quote, There is absolutely no way on Earth, on this planet, or any other planet that we can do 20 million tests a day, or even 5 million tests a day. So. He's getting fired. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely going to get fired. You, not even not even in the realm of other planets could we reach that goal. <laughs> yeah. I want us to be able to reach that goal, and if somehow we do manage to reach that goal and Trump was right, then you know what? I'll I'll be the first to come on this podcast and give him credit. But the projections right now are saying that that is impossible. Yeah. And for Trump to come out and basically be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's totally going to happen. We don't want people to be lulled into a false sense of security. Yeah. Especially considering how antsy people are getting mm-hmm. when they're stuck in their houses for months and months. Yeah. We want to get out. And the only way we are going to open up the government is if we increase testing. And if you make it seem like we're going to be increasing testing by more than we actually will, there are a lot of people that are going to assume, oh, well, that means that this will end soon. But you need to be honest with people. It's probably not going to end anytime soon. We're we're probably not going to reopen in mid-May. I hope we do. I hope we can. I hope it's feasible for that to happen. But it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, you know what's way worse than telling someone it's going to be a few months? Telling someone that it's going to be a couple weeks and then a couple weeks more, and then a couple weeks more. Yeah. <laughs> That's way, way worse. It's like if you're building a a like bomb shelter, 
you need to have a good idea of how long you're going to have to be down there. <laughs> and that's pretty much what we're talking about. We're talking about people being prepared for the long haul. You know, they got to stock up on puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just yeah. have one 5,000 piece puzzle you keep doing. That's, that's going to drive you nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. we're not really where we need to be. Um, and to Nathan's point, we wish we were, but wishing is not going to get us there. Yeah. And it really, it really is disappointing just how quickly it has, it has become a part of the Overton window mm-hmm. to view a large number of Americans dying in order to reopen the economy as acceptable losses. Another area of a bit of controversy um, in these past few weeks has been focused on like China and the coronavirus. So we, you know, on this podcast have not really delved into this topic too much. We've pretty much referenced that, of course, China delivered some kind of suppressed um, total count of probably deaths and infections. Um, That's kind of what they do. Like they've got a, they've got a track record of under reporting um, in previous outbreaks. They over report productivity metrics. Like we're talking about a communist dictatorship that, you know, is trying to protect their international reputation. They're, author- they're an authoritarian country. I mean, yeah. their president banned Winnie the Pooh because someone pointed out that he kind of looked like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, and that's That just, is an actual fact. Look it up. And, and that's ridiculous because everybody knows he looks more like Rue. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> You're right. He's going he's gonna to ban other characters. Maybe Piglet. <laughs> but anyway, so we wanted to talk a little bit about um, just some of, the, some of these claims and what's legitimate, what's not, and whether it really is helpful at this point to try to, to be pointing blame and fingers in that direction. Um, so one of the major claims, which probably has the most weight, um, and it's probably the most accurate, is that they, they underreported cases early on, which we think is largely true. Like, in general, we take information coming out of China with a grain of salt. Um, now, that combined with the fact that they were reluctant to uh, accept any CDC help early on, um, they, they, we actually have reports of them you know, threatening and silencing doctors that were trying to draw attention to this early on. There were a few um, Wuhan doctors that uh, were like threatened with being labeled anti-state actors if they, um, if they talked about this virus that was, that was starting to show up. Um, there's reports of them suppressing some data that they thought was like a little too scary. And, you know, we know that they didn't report accurate numbers um, back in like the SARS outbreak and with other similar outbreaks. So they totally should be blamed um, for suppressing these figures, right? Because like we want, we like information about a a disease like this is really key for fighting it. And so we want the information coming out of everybody who's involved to be as good as possible. But one of the ways we do this is not by like pointing the finger and saying, hey, you lied, especially not while you're actively fighting the disease. The way you do it is by trying to like get them to come clean and to like introduce international agencies so that it's not just the United States going mano a mano against China which is basically what role the WHO has played, um, which we are simultaneously defunding. Um, (laughs) But this has actually been a bit successful. So um, the WHO has been working in China uh, with the Chinese government for a few months now. um, And recently China came out with 
some updates to their data that was um, that assessing the number of cases that came out of Wuhan. So they increased the case number by 325, and they increased the total count of deaths by 1,290. Now, according to according to China, um, these misreported numbers are you know due to co- like data collection challenges early on. And whether that's true or not doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, like, so so first of all, it could totally be true. We've had similar challenges in New York City because it's honestly just hard to figure this out. We're not testing that many people. Um, and, you know, we're, we're only testing people when they come into hospitals. Um, and, and especially early on when cases first start to spike, you don't really have the staff or the preparation in order to accurately track everything. But even if they, like, are, they were, like, misrepresenting their numbers, right now, we need to be trying to work with them, not against them, right? Like, the the common enemy here is coronavirus. And we should definitely take time after all of this is concluded to, you know, assess if there were any bad actors and assess wrongdoing and try to figure out ways that we could do this better in the future. Um but right now, we need to focus on trying to get the best information, trying to get to a productive endpoint, and trying to like limit the spread of this disease and death. Also, if you want to talk about transparency, remember we were talking about how in the United States there is a major issue with the fact that we have a shortage of testing, that we need to get to the point where we are testing 500,000 to 700,000 minimum, but ideally like 5 million to 20 million on a daily basis. But we have no way of getting to that point. Mm-hmm. And the top watchdog at the Department of Health, Inspector General uh, Christy A. Grimm, was recently fired because she released a report that laid out the reality of shortages on testing and mm-hmm. personal protective gear yeah. during the coronavirus pandemic, which it seems like that's something we would need to know, but instead they fired her and replaced her. So yeah. you want to talk about transparency? You want to talk mm-hmm. about, uh, you want to talk about not being clear with where we stand on COVID-19? Yeah. And, and the thing is like the Trump administration is, doing what they usually do and trying to pin blame anywhere except on themselves. Like initially Trump was praising Xi Jinping for like, you know, dealing with this in an effective way and like, you know, doing a good job in a challenging crisis. Now, you know, more information has come out about the um, death rate in other countries, which indicate that the lower mortality rate in China is probably an inflated figure. Um, so, so it makes sense to kind of change your tune, but it seems like he's kind of r- trying to ride um, like the wave of negative global sentiment against China as like multiple countries have come out saying that they're going to try to seek, you know, some kind of reparations from China, um, including like trying to sue the, comp- the country to correspond with their number of deaths. So like Trump has indicated during a White House press conference that he was going to, that the U.S. would seek hundreds of billions of dollars in damages from China if it was too difficult to get um, through international courts that, quote, 
we could do something much easier than that in kind of this ominous, like, like vague comment. I'm just hoping he's talking about economic and not military action. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I, look, I despise the authoritarianism of China as much as the next person, but I don't want to go to war with them. <laughs> well, and yeah. And also the, like they're coming out, like they're getting a lot of international flack, but you know, they almost sound like the big boys in response to that. Their, their foreign yeah. ministry said the U S should know that their enemy is the virus, not China. They should focus on <laughs> containment at home and international cooperation instead of smearing China and shifting the blame onto China. It's like, yeah. they sound like the adults. <laughs> yeah. Let's complain about them after the virus. Yeah, no, exactly. Like you don't, during any type of like of time when you need to focus on execution, you shouldn't be undermining your own team. You should come back later and try to f- work out all of these kinks. Like everybody yeah. should be held responsible, including, including the Trump administration, right? Yeah. But like right now we need to be focused on doing the very best we can. And also to be clear, when Michael and I lay out our critiques on the Trump administration, we're not doing that because we want to be petty and throw throw out the blame game. We're doing that because we want people to recognize how bad the actual situation is. Now, we have plenty of criticisms for how China handled this, and we do think that there does need to be accountability for that, obviously not militarily or anything like that, but there does need to be accountability, and they do need to be called out for that. But we do need to recognize that Regardless of what they have done in the past, right now we have a crisis and we need to do better with it. We need to work together in order to um, in order to combat it. And yeah. pointing out critiques is not the same thing as uh, playing the blame game. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah, I think that's spot on. And especially because like we are trying to draw attention to what we can do better. Um, and that's even if like people, like people in power were listening to us in this case, we've got the leader of the United States of America, like blaming another country. Um, oh, you didn't know Trump's one of our, uh, one of our weekly listeners. Oh, wow. That's, he's, a, that's... he's a huge fan of the show. <laughs> he just tunes in when we talk about Biden. <laughs> but the crazy thing is like, I love those guys. They're fantastic. That's not the only crazy thing that's coming out of this administration. Mike Pompeo, he, who is currently the secretary of state was trying to, um, was citing a, un, like was citing this conclusive report that, um, was trying to indicate that the coronavirus was started in a lab in China and that <laughs> faulty lab procedures, um, when they were like trying to make this deadly virus, led it to being accidentally released. It's like, are you insane? That is so not helpful right now. <laughs> I feel like if it was engineered in a lab, they would have done a better job. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's I it's deadly, but I feel like it's not deadly enough to have been developed in a lab. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about that stuff. But yeah. but again, there doesn't appear to be significant evidence to demonstrate that. Now, if you want to show me some evidence, show me some evidence. Totally. But there doesn't appear to be that evidence right now. Mm-hmm. And that type of speculation is not healthy. Yeah, especially from like the leaders of our nation. 
Yeah. And of course, in response, the Chinese government um, started claiming that it actually started in the U.S. as part of a U.S. military operation. <laughs> so oh, for God's sake. now everybody's on that train. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> but ultimately, that's like, this what is, we need. Yeah. Ultimately, this is all unproductive, not helpful, and like divisive when we need to be collaborative. The only way to get ahead of this thing is to work internationally and collaboratively against the virus. Because again, this is killing hundreds of thousands of people. It is public enemy number one. Seriously. There's like no single greater threat right now to US lives. And now time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? So we do Tips for Good to bring facts or tips that you can bring into your everyday life that, if enacted, would make the world a little bit of a better place. So, Nathan, what's our Tip for Good this week? Well, Michael, our Tip for Good this week is to call an old person. (laughs) Just old people. Only call that. (laughs) Just old people. So uh, specifically, like, call an elderly individual who's maybe a family member or someone you're close to and just talk to them for a while. Mm -hmm. Check in on them. And the thing that inspired this was uh, I was talking to my grandmother the other day. Um, My wife and I currently live with uh, my grandmother um, because I'm surviving on an adjunct salary and, you know, Das adjunct life for you. (laughs) Um, And she mentioned that she was really glad that my wife and I were living here with her. Because if we weren't, then she would currently be dealing with this virus alone. Mm -hmm. And that that would have been really difficult for her. She was retired. She's widowed. And it's really nice for us to be able to be there for her. And that really made me appreciative of our current stance of where we are right now of how lucky that I currently am to be quarantined with, uh, two individuals who I am very fond of and I love. Um, and it made me really think that that's not the case for a lot of our elderly relatives and our elderly friends. A lot of them, maybe it's because they're widowed. Maybe it's because of other reasons, but a lot of them who are, mind you, the most susceptible to potentially dying from this virus. So it's most important that they keep themselves quarantined. They can get really lonely. Yeah. And a call can really mean a lot. Yeah. So on top of all the things that, you know, you and I, presuming that we're younger people might be experiencing, they're also probably more anxious about getting ill from this disease and potentially more isolated um, than we might be. And on top of all that, you know, <clears throat> we have an easier time using technology, you know, setting up our internet, watching Netflix, reading like Kindles, f- zooming oh, with God. our friends, like, like all of these things that technological things that we take for granted, um, for a lot of older people are really challenging to deal with, you know, like, even if you have your Netflix set up properly on your TV, like if it goes out or your internet goes out, you may not yeah. know how to fix it. And so yeah. being, like reaching out, being a resource, um, 
just checking in can make a huge difference to people that are probably really feeling it this time, this the right about now. Yeah. If I had a penny for every time I um, had to help my grandmother figure out some type of video chat program, I wouldn't need to live here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, that's tips for good. Call an old person. So our next segment is going to focus on stories that have slipped through the cracks. There's a lot of focus on COVID-19, and for a good reason. It's a global pandemic, and it's killing a lot of people, and it's currently infecting every aspect of our life. That was probably a poor choice of words. (laughs) That's not the only thing that is happening in the world today. So Michael and I are just going to briefly run through a few stories that are worth mentioning that a lot of people didn't really notice or didn't really focus on because of all of the other craziness that is happening. We will caveat this by saying it's really hard to find these stories. (laughs) We were digging around for hours, like looking for um, just things that are outside of the coronavirus mainstream because it's yeah. really difficult to like you can't I've tried many times news that's not coronavirus. <laughs> it is and that that just brings yeah. up more coronavirus news. <laughs> yeah. It automatically asks me that on mm-hmm. Google when I start writing news that's not and then it's Did yeah. you mean coronavirus? <laughs> and then the research results are coronavirus news. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like damn it. Google can't the Google algorithm apparently can't understand no. <laughs> It infects our minds, it infects our bodies, it infects our Google. What is next? (laughs) So anyway, we just wanted to bring a few things to your attention. So the first one that we wanted to talk about was this insane story that when I first saw a headline of, again, I believed that there's no way that that could be entirely true. There Mm -hmm. has to be more to it. And that's the fact that, remember... Those government stimulus checks, which a lot of people still have not gotten, mm-hmm. partially because Trump saw fit to put his name on it. Yeah, yeah. So apparently there's a large group of people in the United States that will not be receiving those checks. And I'm talking about American citizens here. So according to the IRS standards of who gets the checks... Spouses of immigrants who do not have social security numbers do not get any money. I'm not saying that the immigrant doesn't, the immigrant without the social security card. It was always going to be like that. I'm talking about the spouse of the so, immigrant so with a no social security number. With a social security number, marries someone without a social security number, and then doesn't is no longer eligible for these for this aid. And not only that. The money they would have gotten from their kids, from having kids, they don't get that either. So this, if this one makes of your, no sense. <laughs> yeah. So if you're if one of your parents, like if you're a kid and one of your parents doesn't have a social security number, your family doesn't get that that money. So there is this uh, there's this anonymous uh, plaintiff, um, a John Doe who is suing the Trump administration over this. And he has two kids and his spouse 
is an immigrant who does not have a social security number. So he should be getting a check of $2,200 and he's not getting that because of who he decided to marry, which is a blatant violation of the equal protection clause in the 14th amendment. And why? Like, what is the point? What is the reason for this? Yeah, it literally like doesn't make, I, I can't even, I can't think of a single rationale for why, even, even from like a Republican perspective, unless you are just saying that immigrants are bad or like permanent legal, non-citizen permanent legal residents just are, are not deserving of any support at all. Because like you're literally saying because you married a non-citizen permanent legal resident, you get nothing? Like, what, do you not have any costs anymore? Like, <laughs> Honestly, I, I don't know what else to say about this. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's crazy to me that this hasn't gotten more attention because it just makes yeah. zero sense. Now, to be clear, a lot of the news is focusing on how President Trump himself is being sued over it. Keep in mind, these are IRS rules. It's unclear as to whether or not he directly instructed this to be the rules for the IRS. And I haven't, so far, I haven't seen him make any direct comments on it. So I'm not sure if this is at his behest, but it does represent a tendency in the Trump administration to just make policies that really have no logical reason behind it other than just cruelty. And, yeah. and on, a related, on a related note, um, the Trump administration on April 22nd issued an executive order which um, limits uh, immigration for most green, heart, green card holders from entering the United States. So it did exempt people that were coming to the United States to work as healthcare um, workers and in other jobs that would directly aid the coronavirus. Um, and his reasoning was kind of twofold. One, um, he wanted to relieve the pressure, the downward pressure on the labor market um, from having immigrants coming in and, and competing with jobs or for citizens with jobs during an unprecedented economic crisis. Nobody's um, working anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's not it's not competition for jobs that's keeping people from going to work. Like, that's not a good solution to unemployment. It's the fact that's that they shouldn't go to work unless yeah. they're absolutely essential. Yes, exactly. Are you goddamn kidding me? <laughs> exactly. And on top of that, um, his his other reason was like trying to prevent the spread of the disease and trying to like alleviate our our healthcare network. But there are a few points that are really problematic here. So first of all, it's Nathan's point. Like. This is not a solution. Like th the problem is not supply side here, right? Like the problem is um, demand side. There's no demand for work, so <laughs> you can't s fix it with a supply side solution, right? Like it just doesn't. It's not going to work that way. People can't work right now, so having fewer people available to work is not a solution. On top of that, this order actually exempts. And is still processing applications like visa applications for temporary worker visas. So those main jobs that he's talking about of people that are like unemployed or or earning like not a ton of money, the the jobs that are competed that um, like temporary workers compete for are still they're still in competition for. So like there's actually like no benefit on um, 
the labor market at all because those jobs are still being supplied by immigrant labor, which, you know, it should be. Like, they're still processing those applications, which makes total sense. So the second thing is that if this were an attempt to, you know, have some kind of national quarantine, you would have to quarantine people that were coming from abroad for like 14 days and then allow them in. But that would include citizens and, you know, other people that would be allowed in via the visa program. Well, those people are just coming in. Like there's no, like, like citizens are not being quarantined. They're, they're allowed to travel from abroad. So there's not like, there's, there's a hole in the boat there too. Like there's no actual like health impact here. And you wouldn't have to restrict immigration for 50 days to solve that health impact. Like, and green card holders are long-term, you know, legal uh, residents of the United States. So really what he's doing, because there's no connection between the labor market um, and this policy is really, he's just trying to like limit the number of people that are able to become permanent residents of the United States and using COVID-19 as a cover. Which is funny because I've been seeing a lot of criticisms on Fox News specifically of Democrats for pushing policies like universal basic income mm-hmm. that basically say, oh, you're using COVID-19 as an excuse to push your socialist agenda, which one is hilarious because the UBI that a lot of Democrats are proposing are specifically tailored to this COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. To this current pandemic. And... That would actually help people because people aren't working. And if they're not working and they're not making money, they're not spending money. So the only way that you can keep the economy flowing is if you put money in their, their, into their hands. Mm-hmm. And number two, the Trump administration is using this to push their agenda. Yeah. And in this case, it really is a non sequitur. Yeah. It, well, that's the thing. Like, if, like, even if you totally both sides this and say each side is using it to advance their own political agenda... One side is using it to advance a political agenda that helps everybody, and the other side is using it to advance a political agenda that literally is just hurting people. Like, not only hurting immigrants, but also, like, the Trump administration is taking advantage of this to apply a bunch of deregulation, specifically mm-hmm. surrounding, uh, surrounding, like, environmental controls. The Trump administration eased um, the enforcement of clean air requirements. So basically, the... Um, EPA said that if if companies think that they won't be able to perform the adequate testing and filtration and things like that because of coronavirus, they don't have to and they won't be fined for it. So it's basically giving factories and power plants and other polluters the ability to self-police and just get away without being fined when they fail to meet these requirements. Well, but Michael... Do we really need clean air? I mean, no one's going outside anyway. <laughs> well, that's the thing. <laughs> First of all, air comes inside. That's a big part of air. <laughs> if air didn't flow inside outside, uh, you would use up all your air and you would die. <laughs> Secondly, this is actually like specifically undermining our ability to survive this virus. Clean air is a really important part of breathing. And if you like and breathing is already inhibited for people that are ill with this virus significantly. Like people that are um, have exposure to pollutants regularly are much more likely to die from this virus. This but includes smokers. This includes people in, in dense uh, like urban areas. But hold on. Is it possible 
that the toxicity in the air could kill the virus. Oh my gosh, of course. Like, so if you sneeze, but you sneeze into like a toxic cloud, that all the virus particles just just die. Is that sure. possible? I'm 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 sure that that's true because as we know, <laughs> as we know, anything that kills a human will kill a virus. So yeah. you know, get out your swords, get out your guns, get shooting at the virus. All those protesters <laughs> with guns, they're trying to shoot the virus. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's ridiculous. And like, so at the same time, at the same time, he's like doing so much to try to undermine clean air. I don't get what Republicans have against clean air, but like they're rolling back fuel efficiency standards. It's like, guys, we really want to be able to breathe right now. And on, on kind of a similar note, they're, the, um, they're even rolling back capital requirement, like capital holding requirements for banks. Um, so basically, these are the requirements that... Um, make banks hold a certain amount of cash to offset the risk of potential losses on their risky assets. So basically, it's the amount of money you need to prevent yourself from going bankrupt in a downturn. Guys, we're literally in a downturn. It is not the time to loosen our capital requirements. <laughs> like, we want to make sure that we're protected from these big banks going bankrupt. I don't get it. It's like, oh, here's a foot. Let's shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> and after you shoot it you'll die from infection because you have no health care yeah exactly it's just like i uh, i don't get it another story is about the saudi-led war in yemen so if if you think 2020 has felt like you know a never-ending year already um yemen has experienced a ceasefire that didn't cease firing already in April. <laughs> so at the beginning of April, the uh, Saudi Arabia announced that it would institute a unilateral ceasefire in Yemen. Um, partially, this was an attempt to like hasten um, a UN-initiated peace talks, um, but it was specifically out of fear of the impact that the coronavirus would have in Yemen. So when I first read that, I was like, seriously? You guys are waging a war in a country and you're more worried about coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is that like Yemen is and the Yemeni people are like in a terrible place right now because of this like war that's been waging since like 2015 and if the coronavirus starts to spread there it could have a, a significant serious impact because there's so little you know support that's able to be provided yeah so at this point even like saudi arabia recognizes that they need to step away <laughs> in order to help like fight this virus um but unfortunately like while they had they they instituted this ceasefire the challenge is that you know when you have a unilateral ceasefire it's pretty easy for it to collapse if the other side isn't quite on board um, and that's basically kind of what happened. Like within a couple, like the ceasefire didn't really happen. Like both sides continue to basically continue to wage war. And, you know, at the same time, um, the coronavirus has started to take hold in Yemen as well. Um, it's not spreading particularly quickly at this point, but we'll see how that goes. But hopefully, hopefully like something about this, change in you know their perspective related to this virus might hasten along 
like peace. I, I don't know exactly how that would come to pass, but a few experts that I was reading have indicated that it's possible that because of this virus, like they may be more willing to come to the negotiating table, and that would be huge. But make sure that when you do go to that negotiating table, you sit six feet apart. Yeah, it's got to be a big, big table. Maybe over Zoom. Just I yeah, yeah. Know. Just just do just do a Zoom. You know, a, a Zoom <laughs> negotiating table. You know, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> so, in case all of that wasn't enough, murder hornets. Oh God! <laughs> I actually I actually saw this just last night right before Michael and I talked to each other to like plan out how we were going to do the pod. Um, I was, I was on Facebook and I was scrolling through and I see this article pop up talking about murder hornets and I'm just like, <laughs> really? 2020? Really? It's ridiculous. How is that all happened. you got? Yeah. <laughs> it is absolutely crazy how much has happened this year. It is like, my mind is totally blown. And somehow, somehow. It's May. We're not even halfway hornets. through. <laughs> so, so, so explain to me what more murder hornets are. Okay. Okay. Think re like, think about, you know, a hornet and then make it two inches long and then give it the ability, um, to kill about 50 people in Japan a year. Um, <laughs> yeah. People, people <laughs> killing <laughs> hornets. Now, what? now that's when that's when you get like stung by a multiple. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, but we're not talking a swarm. We're talking a few. <laughs> but potentially more impactful is the fact that these murder hornets uh, have a particularly fun time murdering bees, specifically honeybees. So you know what they do is they is they. Um, infiltrate the honeybee's nest or and, and when i say infiltrate i mean they like barge in with a hammer and then they rip the heads off the honeybees they literally decapitate them and then they eat their babies <laughs> <laughs> what the hell <laughs> so uh so they're like the Vikings of yeah. bees. <laughs> yes, exactly. So welcome to the US <laughs> murder hornets. <laughs> Welcome to the, uh, yeah, welcome to 2020. <laughs> and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of, of the, the week. week. So Nathan, who is our asshat this week? So Michael, our asshat this week is Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. Oh, Senator Tom Cotton for brains. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so what yeah, did he one do? Of our, one of our favorite senators. Yeah, how did he finally make the list? Yeah, how did he? How did it take th this long for him not to make the list? That's a good question, honestly. He's kind of a yeah. crazy guy. Um, so Tom Cotton was on an interview uh, on Fox News where he was talking about one of the real problems that we need to worry about during the COVID-19 outbreak. Mm -hmm. And that is Chinese students, That's specifically so Chinese graduate students. So, yeah, they're so he smart. was talking about how he was concerned that the Chinese were stealing intellectual property from the United States, which in normal times, that's a legitimate concern. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that there has been an issue in which China has been stealing intellectual property of the United States in normal times, you know, 
But he was making the point that he was concerned that some Chinese graduate student studying science was going to steal vaccine research and share it with the Chinese. To which I would respond with, good! Yeah, seriously. Like, we want everybody to have a vaccine. Everybody having a vaccine means that it stops spreading. And we want it to stop spreading. But Nathan, how is Bill Gates going to get rich on the vaccine if the Chinese (laughs) steal it? (laughs) Yeah. So he said, quote, So I think we need to take a very hard look at the visas that we give to the Chinese nationals to come to the United States to study, especially at the postgraduate level in advanced scientific and technological fields. If Chinese students want to come here and study Shakespeare and the Federalist Papers, that's what they need to learn from America. They don't need to learn (laughs) quantum computing and artificial intelligence from America. Which, okay, he does know that Shakespeare is from Britain, right? Right. Yeah, seriously. Like, <laughs> they can only come here to study the humanities. That's hilarious. That's, yeah, but that's, apparently. <laughs> that's the problem. That's what he thinks we have to offer them. We want to offer them science. We want to be a scientific superpower. Like, that's a goal. Yeah. And also, let's not forget that we have students over there as well. In fact, one of my best friends is over there studying language right now. Mm-hmm. So it's a symbiotic relationship. The reason why we have exchange student programs is because we want to have symbiotic relationships with other countries. Seriously. We want to do that in order to create better relationships and give people better associations with the United States around the world. Mm-hmm. That's why we do it. Yeah, And you know what's not going to help them have better associations with the United States? If some asshat senator is saying, oh, let's ban the Chinese from studying science. Yeah. Because they might steal a vaccine and go use it to help their own country. I would love it if, like, all it took was for us to, like, like, um hide a vaccine and then they're like oh man that's like really important then we better steal it and use it it's like oh the ultimate (laughs) yeah it's like i don't know why you'd be demonizing students it like makes no sense he he said quote it's a scandal that we have trained so many of the the chinese communist party's brightest minds to go back to china it's like we want to share scientific information we want to like form these these the strong intellectual bonds that have developed over years of collaboration internationally with scientists are one of the strongest tools we have against the coronavirus. Like we need to be doubling down on those. We need to be working on those, not trying to abandon them right now. It's just, it's like it's the default setting for elected Republicans to immediately revert back to how can this profit us? Like no matter how terrible, like if there was an asteroid hurtling towards earth, I (laughs) bet you that there would be some elected Republicans that would be trying to trying to find some way to profit off of it. They're like, we're going to push it towards your country unless you like give us a really advantageous <laughs> trade deal. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we're all, we're all in this together and asshats like Tom Cotton have no place in these conversations. Exactly. So congratulations to Tom Cotton for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. So now it's time for our last segment and likely the least fun segment of the day, which is saying something after coronavirus and sad stories that you missed because you were focused on coronavirus. 
<laughs> so first off, we wanted to give a quick uh, trigger warning. Um, we will be talking about um, sexual assault, N- not in like explicit detail, um, really, but we just wanted to let everybody know that that's what this next topic is about. Um, so if you feel like you will be um, in a psychologically vulnerable position listening to this set next segment, uh, go ahead and tune out now, and all you'll miss is that and um, our highlights of the week at the end. So, Nathan, what did we want to talk about today? So, this week is partially uh, about setting the record straight and partially about giving us an outlet to talk about some of the really problematic crap we've been seeing recently. So it feels like a lot of Democrats have suddenly forgotten all of the lessons that they were taught about sexual assault survivors during the Kavanaugh hearing. Now that a prominent Democrat, Joseph Biden has been accused of sexual assault. So I've been seeing article after article outlet after outlet, talking about how the Tara Reid allegation is just not credible. And a lot of the reasons that they're citing are reasons that we've heard before. So one of the big ones is the fact that she changed her story. Originally, she was just talking about how he had touched her in ways that maybe weren't sexual, but still made her uncomfortable. And keep in mind, She came out and talked about this when there were a lot of other women that were coming forward and talking about how Joe Biden had made them feel very uncomfortable, either through uh, touching, hair sniffing, stuff like that. And then later, she expanded on her story to say that there was an act of sexual assault. And that's actually not all that uncommon. Because the act of sharing a sexual assault story is one that is very personal. And it can be very triggering. Like, it can be very therapeutic, but it can be very triggering. Yeah. Especially if you're doing it on a public forum. Yeah, the the sharing of, of what is a often a incredibly traumatic experience is especially when when it's maybe uh, one of the initial times that you've talked about it is potentially a a reliving of that traumatic experience like like remember we're talking about like trauma we're talking about um, an experience that leaves people scarred and so Facing that is a trial. It is a challenge. And the expectation that people should, like, be perfect the first time they share that or, or you know, that they should always be 100%, like, open about that experience is totally unfair to the people that have gone through this. And a like way too much to expect from from someone especially if they're expected to share it publicly you know like just because you come back later and say that more happened than you initially said doesn't mean that what you said later isn't true right like yeah. 
like that that doesn't follow in in any way and especially when we're talking about something that is a a personal difficult incredibly challenging choice even when it's not on the public stage and then you add on all of the public scrutiny all of the incredible trials that go along with sharing a story like that publicly like that is that is a decision that I wouldn't wor- wish on my worst enemy and the fact that yeah. we expect people to like to be able to to do this to be able to one share this flawlessly right 20 plus years later to share it with with you know no details held back with full transparency that's a tremendous amount to ask of an individual another point that i want to make about that is so remember when the me too movement first started and there were a lot of people posting on social media the hashtag me too mm-hmm and a lot of people saw, oh my God, look at all these people that I've known for a long time that have experienced this. One thing that you should also recognize is all of the people that didn't, yeah. all the people that have a story, mm-hmm. but are too uncomfortable to share it. Yeah. There are a lot of people that don't want to have to go through that yeah. or that aren't comfortable going through that. And you're not entitled to their damn story. Exactly. So they decide to share it when they decide to share it. Now, it's on us when they do share it to take it seriously and to investigate it. Mm -hmm. Now, Michael and I have said from the very beginning that we are not going to just come out and say we believe Tara Reid or that we believe Joe Biden. We're not going to do that. We are saying we're going to look at the evidence. We want the evidence to come out. We want there to be as much transparency as possible so that the American people can see all the evidence in front of them in order to know who it is that we might be electing to the White House. Now, to be clear, we are not Trumpsters. Like, we're not doing this because we're trying to hurt Biden and help Trump. Trump has been accused by dozens of women, and he has admitted, he has admitted to sexual assault. Mm-hmm. When, when he was bragging about grabbing women by the pussy, he was admitting to sexual assault. And when he was called out in a debate, he denied that that was sexual assault. He was like, no, I don't think that's sexual assault. If you grab someone by the pussy without their consent, That's not sexual assault. So don't think that we're letting Trump off the hook. Don't think that for one second. Yeah. This isn't about party. This isn't about partisanship. I don't give a damn if you have a D or an R next to your name. If you sexually assault someone, you don't deserve power. Because like, you know, and and again, this is like perfectly compatible with saying that if the choice is between Trump and Biden— you vote for Biden. To Nathan's yeah. point, like, you know, we've got someone in Trump who, like, is it has admitted to at least one act, has been accused of of many more, and then on Biden's side, you have um, a single 
like you know women that have come forward and said they were uncomfortable and then a single uh, alleging of of sexual assault even if that like were confirmed to be true you could still say that you should vote for Biden over Trump because Trump's record on that is significantly worse than that yeah but again it's it's so it's what it's about is understanding who we're electing respecting the fact that we in this country we don't let people get away with stuff just because it's convenient or at least we shouldn't let people get away from stuff just because it's in our interest to do so yeah and like i've said in the past on this pod and i'm sure that i'm sure that there uh, are some people that this pisses off you know it's very possible that uh that if we ever get big some people in the Democratic establishment are going to take this clip and be like, you know, look at how terrible Nathan was when he said this. <laughs> but I don't give a damn. I'm going to say it. Once Joe, if Joe Biden gets elected, I would support an impeachment inquiry. I would yeah. absolutely support that. An impeachment inquiry to investigate the hell out of this, to clarify as much as possible one way or another what happened. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't give a damn if he has a D next to his name. Yeah. And that's the thing, like, the incredible frustration of all this is, you know, the Democratic Party has typically been the one or the groove of people that stand with survivors, that are allies, you know, that, like, in the past have held Democrats and Republicans to the same high standard. And the fact that we're not seeing that consistency now is really disappointing. Another thing that I've been seeing circulating among a lot of my Democratic friends um, is a report about how David Axelrod, who ran Obama's campaign, vetted Joe Biden at the time in 2008 when they had decided to make him vice president, and they found no sexual assault complaints from Tara Reid. And a lot of people just haven't been reading any further than that. But the reason for that is that in the original complaint, she didn't explicitly accuse Biden of sexual assault. It's only recently that she's come forward and actually accused him of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. So you can't say that, oh, they found no allegation of sexual assault in 2008 because she hadn't made it yet. That's not an argument. And... You know, to be fair, like Joe Biden recently came out and did an interview. Um, and and this is uh, one of the things that he said about this particular complaint, which I think is probably the most you can probably expect from someone in his position right now. He said, quote, look, from the very beginning, I said believing women means taking the woman's claims seriously when she steps forward and then vet it. Look into it. That uh, That's true in this case as well. Women have a right to be heard, and the press should rigorously investigate claims they make. I've always upheld that principle, but in the end, in every case, the truth is what matters. So ultimately, like, I think what I would expect of him is that he stands by the principles that he claims to have always put forward, which is that you should believe women and that you should investigate these claims thoroughly. So to the extent that he actually supports that, and honestly beyond, like, a press investigation right like the press don't have any power to subpoena documents like we should be doing a real investigation 
Like that is what we should be expecting is a full and yeah. thorough investigation that involves going into the archives and trying to locate complaints and trying to find witnesses and, and digging into this fully. Cause ultimately yeah. we want the truth. And I think that Biden should want the truth. And if we do end up finding evidence that it is a false allegation, if we do end up finding evidence that proves that Biden is innocent, then that's fine. That's great. I would love for that to happen. I would love to be able to um, put Biden in the White House knowing that he's not a sexual predator. Mm -hmm. But all I'm asking of Democrats, I'm not saying stay home. I'm not saying don't vote for Biden. I'm saying treat this allegation with the same level of serious vetting and a serious desire for investigation as you treated the Kavanaugh hearing. Yeah. Exactly. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately, like, on a very cynical, very tactical approach, the Republicans are using this as a political tool to try to make the claim that Democrats being in support of survivors is just a political ploy to... Um, you know, be able to undermine their candidates. Now, it happens to apply to a bunch of their candidates, which is weird. <laughs> but like, but ultimately, like, to the extent that people are using a double standard to evaluate, you know, Trump and Kavanaugh and Biden, they're right. And to be clear, just because they're right doesn't mean that we don't need a serious political conversation about sexual assault. Yeah. Like, th that's another thing to be clear about. Just because there is truth in them saying that a lot of Democrats in uh, elected offices are using sexual assault survivors and sexual assault stories in order to further their own political agendas, that doesn't mean that those stories don't still need to be at the forefront of conversations. Yeah, seriously. Just because both sides are being bad doesn't mean there isn't good out there, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, doesn't mean that there isn't a right answer. Yeah. Just because everybody's being an asshole doesn't mean you should expect people not to be assholes. Yeah. Don't check out of the conversation just because everybody's garbage. Yeah, exactly. And ultimately, first and foremost, believe women, understand these issues to the best of your ability, and, you know, push for looking for the truth and supporting the people that need it. And on that note, we will close out our episode with some highlights. All right, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Oh, God, we really need to talk about highlights after that roller coaster. <laughs> Damn. Uh, that's, that might actually be the closest I've ever come to tearing up while we've been recording the podcast. That's a um, <laughs> Emotional vulnerability yeah. is a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, my, my highlight, I actually have two highlights this week. Uh, my first highlight is... Uh, I got to see my brother this weekend. Mm. Um, he came by and uh, he helped install some new parts for my computer. Um, and I got to hang out with him. Now, mind you, I got to hang out with him um, on the other side of the room in the garage, mm -hmm. standing in the doorway while he worked on the other side of the garage. Uh, but I still got to see him and that was really nice. Um, 
and uh, yeah, he he fixed my computer with a with a, with a hammer. I'm going to let those of you who have built computers in the past spend some time trying to figure out how he used a hammer during that process. <laughs> so there you go. That's for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then my you other got a hammer, a CPU, right? Like it's just. <laughs> <laughs> and then my other highlight is uh, I have finished up. Uh, my community college classes. Uh, I still have to turn in grades at the end of this week and they still need to take their final, but um, everything is finished. Uh, the, the classes are finished and it was a really good semester. I got a lot of really positive feedback from my students on the last day. A lot of them told me that they really enjoyed my class and, and I really appreciated that. And uh, I also told them about the podcast. So if any of y'all are listening, huge shout out. It was a great semester and I loved having you in class. Awesome. I am going to potentially do the most boring highlight that I've ever done. <laughs> I'm really enthusiastic about my plants right now. I've got <laughs> <laughs> I've got like five or six. How many do I have? One, two, three, eight. I've got eight. Eight plants that are currently all alive and thriving. I I like I have killed every plant I've ever owned. Um, yeah. I am a, I am a notorious plant murderer. I am, I am the murder hornet of plants. And, <laughs> but lately I've been like, you eat their babies. <laughs> yeah. I tear their heads off and eat their babies. Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess you, you are a vegetarian. So yeah. Yeah. I basically those poor that. plants. <laughs> you murderer. <laughs> <laughs> my lettuce is always screaming when I'm putting it in my mouth. Um, cause I eat it raw, obviously fresh and raw. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they've been like thriving and staying alive and I'm about to transition them to being outside as the risk of frost goes away and I've been just, you know, getting really into it. So yeah, uh, on my, on my lifelong transition to becoming an old man, I'm super <laughs> into my plants right now. <laughs> yeah. So with that, thank you so much for tuning into the Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.